Growth Ministries presents Paul E. Steele, pastor of the Valley Church, Cupertino, California. Paul brings the Christmas message titled, The Joy of Christmas, The Joy of Savior. Bow in a word of prayer, shall we? Oh God, you are to be honored. So many things that we concentrate on, whether it be physical pain or whether it be the joys of life, so many of those things are but superficial because really you are the one that deserves the glory and the honor and the praise. And I would ask just now that that might be the case here today, that we might understand some of your ways. We pray that we might be like those men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what to do and therefore were strong and did exploits for God. Grant to us, Lord, the ability to discern the hand of God in all of the details and circumstances of life. We'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Life is filled with paradoxes. Perhaps Charles Dickens described it best in when he opened his classic, The Tale of Two Cities, with these immortal words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period. In essence, what he is saying is, this is life. The good mingled with the bad. Every period of life, that mingling of those things that we would describe as that which is helpful and wonderful and those things that we would cause, uh, call tragic. The good mixed with the bad. Evil mixed with that which is divine. Light mixed with darkness. Hope mixed with despair. In the best of times, it seems as though there's, there's always something to spoil it. Some fly is always in the ointment. Some killjoy is at every party. But on the other hand, in the worst of times, in the times of the greatest difficulty with its grueling cruelty and its grim circumstances, there's always a silver lining behind the cloud. And that seems as though that's just the way life works. This is especially true in the life of a Christian. I can recall as a boy overhearing a personal worker telling someone else, the uh, fact that, uh, or, or explaining it as fact, that 
Uh, if you become a Christian, all your problems are over. I remember going home and saying to my mom, Mom, are we Christians? And mom said, well, certainly, son, we, we know Christ as Savior. You know what that means. I said, that's right. But mom, we have problems. And uh, I heard this person say that if you accept Christ, all your problems are over. The thing I think it would be more fair to say is, uh, my friend, if you accept Christ, your problems may be just beginning. Because God in his great and divine purpose includes the sweet with the bitter and gives us sometimes the worst of circumstances so that we learn how to trust him in the midst of it. But all of the time, it's his sovereign hand working out beautifully the plan that he has designed. His purpose, you understand, in life is not necessarily to make you happy, but to make you conformed to the image of his dear son. Charles Spurgeon, in seeking to explain the difference between the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and the New Covenant in the New Testament, said this, and I quote, The Old Covenant was a covenant of prosperity. The New Covenant is a covenant of adversity, whereby we are being weaned from this present world and made meet for the world to come. You see... The Christian life takes the long look. The Christian life looks beyond the immediate circumstance and looks to those things that are yet to come. And God is working out his purpose in this new covenant. His will for us is good and acceptable and perfect. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift, makes no mistakes. And from his loving hand, he gives us, as necessary, both sorrow and and joy, and then works it all together for his good, for our good, I should say, and for his glory. And he encourages us to count it all joy when we fall into different kinds of trials and temptations. The Apostle Paul had learned something of this and, and had, had uh, solved some of these paradoxes of life as he said in First or Second Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Later in chapter 6, he further explains this phenomenon when he says we are as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, and yet not put to death, as sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and possessing all things. It's like Paul, you ever see a tennis game? Ever see the heads of the people in the audience, you know? You always know where the ball is, by where everybody's looking. Well, it's Paul's like this. Perplexed, but not in despair. Sorrowful but always rejoicing. And God wants us to get this kind of look. It's all right to look here, but then let's look here. That's the way life is. And for the believer in Christ, there are many, many perplexing circumstances. There is perhaps no greater illustration 
of the mingling of the sorrow and the joy than there is in the Christmas narrative. It was for sure the best of times, and mostly when you hear a message on the Christmas story, that's what you hear, the best of times. Christ was born in Bethlehem. What a wonderful thing. What a marvelous thing. But uh, to quote Dickens again, it was also the worst of times. And indeed, it was the blending of light and darkness. I know that Christmas is often thought of as a jolly time, a happy time. And that's because often the world thinks of the Christmas story in such a trivial way. It was hardly jovial and certainly not happy. For, you see, happiness is a word that comes from the the same word as happen and has to do with favorable circumstances. A careful look at the circumstances of Christmas is going to reveal to you the fact that the circumstances were anything but favorable. It was not a happy time. The story of Christmas is framed in a shroud of tragedy and unfavorable circumstances, at least from the world's viewpoint. It was indeed a dark world. Isaiah the prophet had foretold in the ninth chapter of his his prophecy that that period of time when Messiah would come to the earth, when the one who would come, whose name would be called Wonderful, when that white person came into this world, that the people would be sitting in great darkness and in the shadow of death. God's chosen people, Israel at this time, were under the oppression of the Roman yoke. Politically, they were powerless. Spiritually, they were in the grip of the slavery of a Pharisaical legalism. They experienced no open vision from God. A prophet had not been heard from for a period of 400 years. Spiritual despair and sterility was evident everywhere. It was a world like that to which Jesus came. His coming in itself is very much a paradox. If you can imagine this, the King of glory the one honored at the Father's right hand for all of eternity past, the one declared as king, was going to leave the the glories of, of the palace of heaven out of the ivory palaces, as the song says, into this world of woe. He was going to leave heaven's glory. He was going to lay aside his divine prerogatives to come to earth to be a man, but not just a man, but to take upon himself the form of a servant, to be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He came only to be refused by the very people that he loved, to be mocked by them, eventually to be crucified by them. That wasn't a very happy picture. The reason for his coming was also extremely tragic. He had to come to this earth because man was alienated from God, because man was sinful and rebellious, and sin had left man impotent to help himself. Man had been left a moral cripple without God and without hope in the world. 
Sin dominated the world scene, and it was necessary for God to send his own son to make a beachhead against this malignant blight called sin. It wasn't a very happy picture. And the manner of his birth was even strangely filled with pathos and tragedy. The virgin birth itself required that Mary, his mother, suffer all sorts of misunderstanding and ridicule. Think of it. She was a young unmarried woman who was expecting a child. One can only imagine the shame that this revelation must have brought. And though she knew the truth, and eventually Joseph understood the miracle and married her, Do you think that she was able to convince the citizenry of the city of Nazareth that everything was on the up and up and that this was a perfectly legitimate situation? Don't be foolish. If a girl in your, teenage girl in your block had the same thing happen to her, you would be still scratching your head and probably some even gossiping about all of this. It's no wonder that later on Jesus Christ, in sort of a veiled reference, was called the son of fornication. Ah, yes, the people knew. And what a difficult time that must have been for those in that family. And the birth of Jesus in a filthy stable, not the beautiful little creche, that we build today, you know, everything is so clean and sterile and nice. Think of it. Think of your grandfather's barn, and you have a better picture of it. Although it was hardly a barn, it was more a cave. It was hardly a pleasant experience in human terms. These circumstances, of course, were providentially arranged for Christ to be born where he was born, but the king of kings was not afforded a sterile environment, or the services of a physician or even a midwife. Mary was far from the shelter of home and the comfort of family. It was just Mary and Joseph in a shepherd's cave, a a bed of hay, a sound of restless animals. He who was rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. We've allowed that scene in our our Christmas minds to become rather quaint. But put yourself in their shoes. This was the worst of times. This was not a happy circumstance. And then, of course, there is the story of the time of purification having passed and the taking of the Christ child to the temple And there, meeting a man who became a prophet of sorts, who gave some wonderful predictions concerning this child that was born. Now, can you imagine coming to the front of the church and having your little baby dedicated and having the man say some nice things about how your child is going, and then turn to the mother and say, however, however, He's going to be given for the rise and fall of Israel. And a sword is going to pierce through your heart. My friend, that's not a pretty picture. 
That doesn't sound like jingle bells to me. That sounds like a very, very, very dark scene. And then to receive word from the angel of the Lord that they couldn't even go home. Why? Because Herod the king wanted to kill the child. And so in the middle of the night, this young family flees as total strangers into the land of Egypt where they sojourned until it was safe for them to return. Couldn't even go home. Couldn't even show the baby off to the family. Couldn't do the normal things. We don't even know how Joseph was able to support himself during those many months down in Egypt. All of that is a part, you see, of the Christmas story. Well, why then, with all of the negatives surrounding this story, is is the Christmas time so dominated by joy and the ringing of bells and the singing of light and happy music and the sounds of laughter and glee? Why is it that good Christian men rejoice? And why is it that there's joy to the world? Well, the answer is quite simple and yet very profound. If you remember, it has to do again with this business rather than this business. You can look down and you can see that this was a grim picture, a tragic picture. But you see, Scripture tells us that we as Christians look not at the things which are seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen except through the eye of faith are eternal. We deal in Christmas with eternal verities that look beyond the circumstances of now and look to those that are yet to come. We're told that there are more suicides at Christmas time than any other time of the year. Why? Because people are looking down and it's grim. We in our nation today are are, are facing the, the winds of war, that's grim. There are tragic circumstances happening in families with disease and with, with problems and difficulties and, and with, with misunderstandings and hurt. And everybody that looks down can say, it's the worst of times. I'm here to tell you, beloved friend, that no, whether we're talking about the Christmas circumstance of 2,000 years ago or the Christmas circumstance of 1990, we are talking about the fact that if you'll simply look up, you'll know that it's the best of times. It's the best of times because Christ the Savior is born. Christmas is a time of faith. And Christmas is a time of hope, and it's a time where we're forced to look beyond the foreboding foreboding circumstances of life and see the joy of a Savior who was born that day. My friend, he didn't come to produce superficial happiness that lasts just a moment. 
He came to produce within you a deep and abiding joy that reaches into eternity. Christ said to his disciples that they would know his joy and that his joy would be made complete. But he also explained to them in the very next chapter, the 16th chapter of John, he said, you're going to have moments when you're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow is turned to joy. What was he speaking of there? Oh, they were sorrowful as they saw Christ die on the cross. But then the resurrection came. When that tomb opened, as Tony Campolo so beautifully puts it, then came Sunday, Friday, that was awake. But Sunday, that was an awakening. There was a whole new way of looking at things when an empty tomb was found. For Christ had indeed risen from the dead. What's the difference? Gaining the divine perspective? Much of what is revealed to us about the Christmas story may be framed in sorrow. But the divine perspective breaks through. Think of it for a moment. Christmas is filled with joy because it sees the purpose of the sovereign God in the darkness of those present circumstances. And the darkness is transformed by the light of God's glory, the shadow of death, produces a life of the new birth, just like Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, so we can reckon that the sufferings of our present time are not worthy to compare with the glory which shall come. It's the matter, beloved, of your focus. It's a matter of whether you are looking to him whether you're looking to His glory, whether you're looking to His purpose being worked out, or whether you're merely seeing your own circumstance. You all know my love for Pilgrim's Progress, and I often mention the muckraker. He's got to be one of my favorite characters. Here he is within sight of the celestial city, and he's raking muck, just raking muck. And he has no smile in his face, He's in his grim business. And Pilgrim says, but look, there's the celestial. No, I'm too busy raking muck. I've got to keep raking muck. And he lives his life just raking muck, raking muck, and never sees that within sight is the glory of heaven. Pilgrim doesn't mess with the muck. He gets on his way. He wants to get to the celestial city and all of the joys that are found there. It's because Christmas is the season of God's intervention in history that we have reason to rejoice in the Lord always. As Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 4. And again he says rejoice. True joy is always rooted in the fact of God's intervention. The joy of the Savior was announced to a young virgin girl by the name of Mary in the dusty town of Nazareth. The angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 came to her and told her, told her that Christ would be born of her, but also revealed that his name would be Jesus, which means a Savior. As difficult as this must have been, 
for Mary to digest. She nevertheless composed a simple psalm of praise to God, sometimes called the Magnificent, which includes these words. Listen to it now. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. This was to Mary the joy of the Savior. Shortly before the writing of that Magnificent, Mary went to see her cousin Elizabeth. You remember the story? She also was miraculously bearing John the Baptist in her womb, which had been barren up to this time. When Mary greeted her with the news of God's miracle, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, testified that the child in her womb leaped for joy upon meeting Mary, and she invoked a special blessing on Mary and the child in her womb. Here's the baby in the womb. Now, the baby is going to be born into the same grim world. And not only that, but John the Baptist would be a special case of the negative. He was, he was born to be a Nazarite and born to be a prophet, the first real prophet the people had had for a period of 400 years since Malachi. And here he was to be born into this world which ultimately would, be, would bring about his untimely death. He spoke out against sin and Herod didn't like what he said and Herod had his head on the platter before he knew what happened. Poor John. His life hardly had a chance to get off the ground. Those things that you would anticipate for a man of his vigor and of his abilities were cut short. He died a terrible death. Yet here he is in the womb. And somehow or another, by God's Holy Spirit, there came to that child in the womb the knowledge that things were working as God had planned. John to be the forerunner the one who was the voice in the wilderness crying, repent, but preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the knowledge and the understanding of this, somehow, even though he was yet to be born, he leaped for joy. Why? Because somehow in that circumstance, he could see beyond all that might have been in life, and he could see the joy that was set before him. When Emmanuel, God with us, was born that night in the city of Bethlehem, Luke's account in Luke chapter 2 tells us that shepherds were watching their flocks on a Judean hillside. The stillness of their night was punctuated by an angel who announced the joy of the Savior in these words, Fear not, for behold, I give you good tidings of great, what? Joy. Joy. 
which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Oh, we're all familiar with the story of the shepherds' adoration of Christ that night. And in the aftermath of their worship, the shepherds returned to their hillside with a decided mood swing. It says that as they were going, they were glorifying and praising God. Concerned for the sheep one moment. Filled with fear another moment. Filled with wonderment at the announcement. Going to seek the Christ child. Worshiping and going on their way rejoicing. I'm not told in Scripture what their economic situation was. But in that circumstance, you can imagine it wasn't upper middle class. They probably sat night by night much colder than we are in this room today. Their lives were not what most people would call pleasant. It was a hard and rigorous life. Yet here they are in the middle of the night, going through the streets of Bethlehem, waking everyone up, praising God. How could it be? It's really quite simple when you think of it. For their eyes had been taken from whatever circumstance they might have and lifted to another dimension, to another realm. They had seen somehow in the panorama of things, that God was still working out his plan and that God had sent a Savior to the world so that salvation might be possible for people like them. Later, probably much later, some estimate up to two years later, wise men came from the east. You remember the story so very clearly. It's depicted so well in Matthew's Gospel. These wise men thinking that if a king is born and the star that they had seen, a new star in the sky, indicated to their thinking that that was the indication of a king. A king was to be born. Where is a king born? It's obvious he's born in a palace. So they went to the palace and said, where's the king? We've come to worship him. And Herod had no newborn king. And so Herod sent for the seers, for those that studied the, the, the Old Testament prophecies and said, where is a king supposed to be born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that's the place. And so he sent the wise men on their way. The idea that if they would come back and tell him where this child was, he too would worship him. Big liar. He wanted to be rid of him. He wanted no one to challenge his position as king. But the wise men went on their way. And they picked up again this, this phenomenon in the sky, this star. It seemed as though the star was moving across the sky now and it led those six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and then 
stopped right over a house. And what did the scriptures say? And when they saw the star, they rejoiced. It was a time of joy for them. To be sure there was a prophecy in their gift. Gold to speak of his being king. Frankincense to speak of him being priest. Myrrh to speak of his sorrow. And even there, there was that dark coloring in what was otherwise a magnificent scene of worship. Here was the one who would be a part of the myrrh and aloes of the burying cloth, the one who would die. But, beloved, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Because Christmas is a time of joy. Now, all of this joy, then, was like a light in a dark room. The darkness was quickly dispelled. The gloom was forgotten in the light of the glory. The sorrow was overwhelmed by the joy of the Savior. Christmas can be a time of rejoicing and should be because we can look down through the corridor of time and we can look beyond the rejection of the Savior and we can look beyond the crucifixion of the Savior And we can see an empty tomb. And we can see a victorious Savior who by death overcame death. And by his life bestows eternal life on all of those that will believe in him. And so joy bells ring and children sing. And we all rejoice at Christmas time because the Savior has come and brought us so great salvation. And as long as our focus is upward and onward and toward glory and toward heaven and toward him and toward his plan and toward what ultimately will take place upon the earth. We have the privilege of living our life with joy, the scripture says, unspeakable and full of glory. That's our privilege. It would be unusual in a crowd like this today for someone to not have come into this room with their lower lip hanging down. There's so much of life that can cause that, you know. My personal experience was to be looking forward with eager eagerness uh, to standing before you today and bringing a message. And then the Lord put me to a little test again. And we had a little setback. Faced a couple of days of real excruciating pain and problem. You know, I I think we all can identify sooner or later in our lives with that text in the Gospels where it talked about the woman with the issue of blood and it said that she suffered many things at the hands of many physicians. Well... We sometimes have to go through that. 
My heart was broken this week as I heard about the, the new tumor in Amber's body. Boyd Pierre, one of our men, has a prostate problem similar to mine, and uh, yet when they wanted to do the surgery, they were unable to because of the fact that he needed two bypass surgeries before they could even attempt the prostate surgery, so he's gone through two bypass surgeries in the last several weeks, and they have him scheduled in February for prostate surgery. Boy, you want to talk glum, we got a lot to talk about. God has put us through some real tests, a lot of our people physically. Bob Franklin still isn't out of the woods. We pray we believe God for it. We see good results, and then we see the tragic slipbacks. One could get discouraged pretty easily if he wanted to. There's reason for us not to sing this Christmas, as long as we're looking here. But the eye of faith lifts you. And we look not at the things which are seen, for they are temporary. We look at the things which are not seen. They are eternal. I don't know about you, my friend, but I think we had better get our focus right. Set your affections, Paul said, on things above, not on things on the earth. For Christ sitteth, at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus said, don't lay up your treasure here on earth. Why? Wait. It's trouble. Moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up your treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. And thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your heart is where it ought to be today, it can take the glum look and give it a smile. Not just a smile of superficial happiness because circumstances have suddenly become favorable. Some people have the idea of joy as being just happiness. and They're like the kid who, who goes through Christmas Eve thinking he's not going to get that thing that he asked for. And he's grumpy and everything else. And then all of the sudden, under the tree, the box comes out, the wrappings are open, and suddenly he's happy. Why? Because circumstances have changed. You live your life that way? Or do you live it the Christmas way? It's the worst of times. Things couldn't be worse than it was then. But it's the best of times. Why? Because the Savior is born. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let's bow. Just in this quiet moment. Perhaps you came here today. Living... 
in the darkness, in the shadow of death, living your life without God and without hope in this world. Perhaps you do not know joy. You've known moments of happiness. But so many times you found circumstances have been able to wipe that out. I'm testifying to you today, beloved friend, that nothing can rob you of the joy when the Savior is in view. This one that was born in Bethlehem's manger came so that you might live a life of rejoicing even in the midst of despair and sorrowing. Even in your worst moment upon earth, it can be your best moment when your eyes are focused upon his glory, when you understand the divine perspective, when you look at those things that he has prepared for them that love him. And I'm telling you today, my friend, Christ does make the difference. He's everything. Everything that matters is wrapped up in him. And to know him doesn't mean the end of your problems, but it does mean an entire new perspective of the future, hope and faith. And I hope that on this Christmas day, that you will surrender to him. What he wants from you is for you to simply acknowledge who he is. Jesus, the Savior. Lord, the sovereign over all of your life. He simply wants you to acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need his salvation. And then personally, personally, commit your life to him. Let him have you. Just say, Lord, I tried it my way, and it's a bummer. I'm ready to let you take it. Just let him have what he, he deserves. He died for you. He gave his life to be the substitute for your sins. Let him take your sin and your sorrow and your burden and your woe and, and, and let him just take it. Watch what he can do in your life, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Right there where you bow, you can say, Oh, Lord, I believe you are God. I believe in you. I trust you as my Savior. Take my sin. Take my life. Make me a new person. You can do that right where you are. And after we dismiss, there are people that will be here at the front of this sanctuary and they would be so happy to talk with you and to confirm this decision in your life today. You just feel free to, to come after the service is dismissed. Thank you, Lord, for giving liberty, for helping us to see you and to see the Christmas story 
in perhaps a little different light this morning. Thank you for the joy that we know and experience. In Jesus' name, amen.